It's good to see you guys. Uh, this is something that we do roughly quarterly where we, we call it Cove Sunday and we bring the kids in. We are Maricopa Springs Family Church, and I think that there's two uh, elements to that. Karis, you can go sit down. This is one of mine. Um, there's two elements to that. One is we're a church and uh, we want to minister to families. But in addition to that, we see our church as a family. Uh, I've mentioned this before. My children look at you as aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, brothers and sisters. And I think that that's a, a beautiful thing. So uh, from time to time, we disturb you, the grown-ups, by bringing the children into the service and we get to do this together. Um, normally they sit under my teaching and for once we made you sit under the teaching of the Cove. So it's reciprocal. Uh, I would love for you, yes, thank you, Trisha. I would love for you to open to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13. And uh, let me pray for us before we get going. Father, we thank you that your word describes your body as a family. You are our father. Christ, although he is our savior, is also our brother. We are called your children. And we thank you that you did your own uh, glory and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in in the family. And we thank you that that uh, manifests itself in your church as well. And that we are blessed to call one another brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would bless us through it, that you would grow us, that you would encourage us and challenge us. Um, Lord, we're, we're desperate for your grace to transform our hearts. And so we pray that you would do that, that you would shape us into your image, that, um, that where there is sin, you would weed that out and instead bring life that we would be bold to repent knowing that there is grace and that we would see your kindness in the face of your son Jesus who shed his blood for us. Um, Father, I pray that you would bless this time and it's in Christ's name for his sake we pray. Amen. Um, I like cooking. Uh, I find that cooking is therapeutic. I feel like there's lots of things in my life that really don't have a clear end or any clear reward for the effort that you put into them. Cooking is one of those where I'm like, there's a definite end and there's a definite positive outcome. So I enjoy cooking. And not too long ago, I made some grilled shrimp with a tequila lime marinade that I thought was delicious. And as I started the process of preparing and cooking, I was at the sink and I was, I was shucking the shrimp, right? I'm, I'm peeling off the, the legs and the shells and here are these raw, stinky, uh, headless shrimp. And of course, my children, being curious, come over and they want to know what I'm doing. And so I show them the shrimp and they're disgusted. And so if you have kids, then you know it's no surprise that uh, after seeing the old shrimp, the raw shrimp that I was preparing, when I finally grilled the shrimp and put them on their plates, what do you think happened? They wanted nothing to do with the shrimp, right? Which, frankly, wasn't an issue as far as I was concerned because I just got to eat more shrimp, which was awesome. Um, The problem was my kids were stuck in the old, right? They they were looking at this thing, the, the shrimp as it was in its, like, original kind of raw form, and they got stuck with that in their minds so that they couldn't anticipate the finished product because they could only think of what I had started with. They were caught up in the ingredients. They had no idea how delicious that grilled shrimp was 
because the creepy legs and the shells and all that, the raw shrimp was just burned into their, their brains, okay? And that was truly a, an unfortunate mistake for them. They missed out. I want you to understand that I think this is the way that we need to approach the Bible, actually. We have to understand the whole Bible in light of the New Testament. Even the Old Testament, even though it came first, becomes subject to what the New Testament teaches. In order for us to understand how delicious the gospel of Jesus really is, we have to start in the New Testament with Christ, with the crucifixion, with the resurrection. And then in light of Christ, suddenly all that the Old Testament teaches us gets a whole new perspective to it. It really begins to make sense. It, it becomes fundamentally changed by what we find in the New Testament. But if we start with the, the sort of raw shrimp of the Old Testament, I think we're going to get some funky flavors when we get to the New Testament and things are not going to make as much sense. Now, I realize this is tricky because if you're like me, you like to start at the beginning. There, there was a while ago where I started watching this Netflix show in season two, and I didn't realize it was season two. And, and so I'm like, wow, there's a whole lot of backstory here that they're not explaining. Uh, and then I realized like five episodes in, oh, that's because I missed the whole season, right? We like to start at the beginning because things tend to make sense that way. But I submit to you that reading the Bible is actually like a fine meal, you don't start with the raw ingredients when it comes to the eating. You start with the finished product. And what is finished then makes sense, or, or what was raw then makes sense in light of what you have completed in the cooking process. So listen, God's plan for salvation, it doesn't actually start in Genesis with the creation of the world and the fall of man. God's plan for salvation starts with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, before time was even made by God, agreeing that Jesus should die for the sins of the world so that man might be saved from his predicament, okay? Of course, the raw ingredients are necessary to get to the resurrection, but it's the finished meal of Christ's redemption through the cross that we're blessed to actually eat as Christians, okay? Now, the reason why this matters is because we're going to look for a few minutes at the Passover this morning. Uh, and you just heard it in the kids' story, right? The Passover was this event that happened uh, to the nation of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. God spared their firstborn sons when he executed the firstborn sons of all of those in Egypt. Uh, but I think that that event only actually makes sense in the light of Christ, God's only son who, being the Lamb of God, gave his blood that we might be spared from death. That's where the story ultimately is pointing to. And this Old Testament event suddenly makes sense in its fullness when we see what Christ does in the New Testament, okay? So the purpose of the Passover is to point to Christ, but not the other way around. Christ did not come to just merely point to the Passover, okay? So I want to read our text this morning, and then I want to just make note of a few things. Um, hopefully you're there. Luke 22, verses 1 through 13. Let me read this. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, that's Jesus, for they feared the people. 
Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to, to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? So Jesus said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and prepared the Passover. Um, I actually want to start at the end of this text, the verses 8 through 13, okay? In the picture offered to us in these verses, Jesus tells his disciples, go and prepare the Passover feast for us. That's in verse 8, okay? He gives them a command to go and make preparations. But what I want you to understand is that in reality, God is the one who has been preparing the Passover feast for his disciples, and for his people from before the foundations of the world. Okay, the Passover was this memorial feast where the people of Israel remembered the time when they were slaves in Egypt, and God brought them out of slavery by killing the firstborn sons of Egypt and sparing the lives of the Israelites through the blood of the Lamb. Okay, but now with the New Testament in hand, we understand who is that Lamb? It is Christ, right? It is Jesus, the Son of God, who by his blood spares mankind from slavery to sin. So what I find beautiful here is even though Jesus is commanding his disciples, go and make preparations for us to enjoy this feast together, the truth of the matter is that Jesus has been preparing this meal for them from before eternity passed. All of history points to this moment. Now is the hour when God's plan of salvation will come to fruition after these thousands of years of preparation where God has been laying the groundwork. So they go in obedience. They do what Jesus asked them to do. And uh, I think we find an incredible kindness here in this thing that Jesus has asked them to do. And here's why. These guys are about to go through the most awful, most horrific experience of their entire life. It's about to unfold before them in the hours ahead of them. They're going to watch their friend and mentor, this man who they have placed all of their hope in as the savior of the world. They're going to see him get arrested and executed in the most painful and humiliating way possible. You need to understand that the the goal of crucifixion was not merely to end somebody's life. If the Romans only intended that, they had much uh, more efficient ways of doing so. The point of crucifixion was to make an example out of the person crucified. It was torture designed to send a public message. Give up your cause or you too will end up like this. And so as the disciples watched Jesus crucified, they were watching their whole world fall apart. They were getting the message loud and clear, go or this will be you next. 
And so I think it was very kind for Jesus to offer them this subtle reminder about who he is and the way that his plans unfold in the hours before they would watch him die. Because Jesus wasn't guessing that there would be a man with a water jar in the town when they got there. He wasn't guessing that if they followed this man, there would be a a room that was not already rented out in the Passover when Jerusalem was cram-packed with people. He wasn't just guessing that the master of the house would offer this space to them. He didn't just get lucky playing the odds that the timing would be just right when they got into the city, okay? You need to understand, Jesus wrote this story from beginning to end before it even started. And every piece of it is a part of his carefully laid plans. From the 12 disciples who Jesus handpicked, to Judas, the one traitor among them, to this upper room meal where Jesus would share about the coming of the Holy Spirit, to the garden where he would go to pray and ask the Father for strength and then ultimately be betrayed, to the false accusations that were leveled against him by liars. Every one of these events, in all of their glorious detail, they were all part of the intimate preparations that Jesus had made in order to die and pay for the sins of mankind. And so I think Jesus is ultimately reassuring the disciples, listen, everything is going according to plan. And the disciples, they get a little foretaste of this fact in these few verses here. Men, as I thought about this, I, I wanted to just remind us that this is the kind of thing that we need to be reminded of constantly, isn't it? Um, I, I don't know about you, but the last like year and a half for me personally has been super hard. I have felt weary. I felt discouraged. Uh, I, it's easy for me to look at past events and wonder, like, God, do you really have any idea what you're doing? It's easy to feel weighed down or discouraged. And if we don't remind ourselves of the implications of the truth that we find in these verses, this assurance that the will of God, even as crazy events are unfolding, is being done just as he purposed it to be done, even as these events might be events that lead to heartache or tragedy, if we're not constantly reminded that God is the one who has laid these events out for us, then yeah, we we might get tempted to fall into feelings of being overwhelmed, despair, discouragement. We might be tempted to give up, to think that we're doing it on on our own, or maybe to become bitter towards God in the circumstances that he's given us, Or maybe just be overwhelmed by grief so that we don't have the strength any longer to put one foot in front of another. And look, in some seasons, life is ridiculously hard. Isn't it? I mean, if you haven't experienced it, you probably at least know somebody who has. And I I think without the hope that Jesus offers to his disciples, just this This little glimpse that all is going according to plan just as Jesus has prepared it, then we could easily become discouraged. 
But if we remember that even as Jesus went to the cross to die a horrible, unjust, undeserved death, every step of the way along the way, his plans were unfolding as he had perfectly prepared them, then we have great comfort. We have great confidence that he has laid out the plans for our life as well. And then because he loves us and because he's powerful and in control, we know that he'll be faithful to bring us through those events, whatever they may be, for our good and ultimately for his glory. And I want you to remember this because if your life is not hard now, it will be at some point. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be brokenness. There's going to be suffering, sickness, discouragement, sadness, unexpected events and tragedies. And when that day comes in those moments, I want to encourage you right now to remember the kindness of Jesus as he tells his disciples, go and prepare this meal. And you'll find everything just the way that I tell you, you will find it. Remember that they did find everything as he promised because he had planned it that way. And remember that even though the events that would unfold would ultimately lead to his death on the cross, after his death came the resurrection where it all began to make sense. And so our God is faithful in all that he plans and all that he does for us. Do you believe that? I mean, whether that makes sense to us or not in any season that we're in, we know that God loves us and that he is good and that all that he does is in accordance with his definite plan, which he purposes. He is working out for our good and for his glory. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. You have a choice in whether you're going to believe that or not. This is not determinism. This is just a big view of God in his sovereignty and power. Although God has planned it, we still mysteriously have a choice to make in whether or not we're going to believe in his goodness, entrust ourselves to him, do what he has told us to do and obey him, or are we going to do the opposite and take matters into our own hands because we think we see it better? Briefly, consider Judas here. Judas becomes Satan's instrument for destruction. Satan enters into him in verses 3 through 6. And I want you to understand, Satan didn't undertake this action against the will of Judas. This was not some demon possession that left Judas utterly without choice here. No, we know that because of John chapter 12... Judas was already helping himself to the money bag of the disciples. Judas was already on a trajectory of rejecting Jesus for some copper coins in his pocket. Judas was already preparing his heart to betray Jesus. Judas became a willing participant with Satan, opening himself to this kind of evil influence so that when this moment came, the die was cast for Judas. He doubted the claims of Jesus. He wanted more. He wasn't content with where Jesus had put him. He was greedy and selfish. And so all of these things were already at work in his heart to make him a willing partner for what Satan 
wanted to do in his work of evil against Jesus. And I want you to understand, you've got a similar choice like that every single day. Are you going to trust Jesus and are you going to believe his words? Are you going to obey him and honor him in what he has asked you to do? Or in any given moment where temptation comes upon you, are you going to betray him, taking matters into your own hands and assuming that you know how to do it better? Scripture teaches us that Satan prowls around like a, dev, uh, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But, but Satan's prey are those who willingly come to him. He is a sucker for easy meals. He does not like to work hard for his catch. He despises hard targets. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So if you even put up a fight against him, he doesn't enjoy going through the harder effort of devouring you. But those who willingly open themselves to participate in his work, yeah, he uses, abuses and devours them. He destroys them greedily. And so I I don't want you to be be deceived. Satan does have power, but he only has the power over you that you enable him to have as you choose to participate in what he does instead of choosing to participate in what the Holy Spirit is doing through Christ. And so don't be like Judas. Don't doubt the promises of Scripture. Don't cease to obey what Jesus has called you to do so that you willingly take up the work of Satan instead. I admonish you instead in whatever circumstances, trust in the surpassing goodness, the surpassing power of Jesus to overcome all things. The final thing that I want to draw your attention to is Ethan. I'm just kidding. What's up, dude? Hi. Uh, The final thing that I want to draw your attention to is Passover. Because this is really where we begin to understand the the old in light of the new, okay? That the finished product is greater than the raw ingredients that make it. Verses 1 through 2 of this passage are dripping with so much irony that it's almost like falling off the pages of my Bible. Listen. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Man, with all of the implications of the Passover that we've talked about. Now listen to the next verse or the next sentence. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Okay, as you already heard, the original Passover, the Israelite families would take a lamb and they would slaughter it. And they were then told, take the blood of that lamb and paint it around the doorposts of your house so that when the destroyer sent from God comes upon your home and sees that blood, it will pass over you and move on to the next house to do the work of death there. This was a curse that God brought upon Egypt for their disobedience. And the Israelites were spared from it because the lamb would be put to death and it would save the family. Now, of course, this ceremony was never primarily about a lamb and blood on the door, we understand because of the New Testament, it's about 
Jesus. Jesus the Lamb, God's only Son. His firstborn Son, whose blood gets painted over the doorposts of our hearts to save us from the wrath of God. And the whole Old Testament points to this moment, the cross, the resurrection, whereby God saves those who believe. And isn't it crazy then that we find those who were the religious leaders, those who most knew the scriptures, plotting against the Lamb of God to kill him, seemingly unaware that it was his blood that would save people from destruction. There's an interesting little uh, detail about this feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the, in the generations that came sort of after the Exodus, uh, the Passover, these events became a, a ceremony where the families remembered them. God commands that they go through sort of a, a ritual of remembrance, okay? Part of that ceremony included that you as a family, kind of like we go pick pumpkins, would go out to the pasture and would pick a lamb, an innocent uh, pure lamb, and you would bring that lamb into your house. And for four days, that lamb would become part of your family. You would adopt it into your home. It would sleep with you. It would eat with you. It would become a household pet. You would begin to love this lamb like a family member. And then at the end of those four days, together as a family, you would literally butcher that lamb. Now, it's not difficult to imagine uh, the kind of weeping and wailing that must have taken place, especially in the households with little kids, right? As this beloved lamb, this cute, cuddly, furry lamb was killed so that the family might feast on its body and spread its blood over the door. Um, A couple weeks ago, I caught a tiny bunny rabbit in our backyard, sort of by accident, and we brought it into the house. It became a pet. Uh, the kids named it Peanut, and we adopted it into our family. And we let it run around the living room sort of by accident because he was quick and he would get away from little hands. And um, we let it sleep in the same room as the kids in a, in a big bucket. And, and then after learning a bit about Uh, desert cottontail rabbits that they don't do so well in captivity, we had to make the hard decision that it would be best to let Peanut go. And if you heard weeping and wailing in Maricopa roughly two weeks ago throughout the air, uh, and you wondered what that noise was, it was my seven-year-old daughter, Karis, whose heart was breaking at the fact that we had to let this little bunny go. She'll still weep for for Peanut right now. Um, We didn't even kill the rabbit. Like, we didn't make stew out of it. We didn't eat it. We just let it go in the backyard. In fact, I was sitting at my desk this morning, and Peanut was in the front yard eating our grass. So he's still hanging around. But you would have thought, in that action of letting him go that the world was coming to a swift end with the ocean of tears that were shed by my children, right? So now imagine the heartbreak of the Israelite families, those children as their beloved lamb was killed, as its blood was spread over the doorframe, as its flesh became food for the table. Imagine the weeping that might have taken place. 
And I think there's a question for us in this as well. Friends, when was the last time you actually wept over the Lamb of God whose blood was spilled for you? I mean, as I mentioned earlier, this life is hard. And of course, in the hardness of life, we weep for ourselves, don't we? We feel grief and sadness because of the difficulties that we go through. We often even expect that others would weep for us as we go through those difficulties. But when was the last time you shed a tear for the lamb who was slain so that your life might be returned to you? As Luke progresses, we're going to see Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the pure spotless Lamb of God, mocked, stripped publicly, beaten, humiliated, falsely accused, impugned, ridiculed, and ultimately nailed to a cross where his blood would drip down onto the ground below. And many who saw him in that moment, Scripture tells us, they, they tore their clothes in anguish over what they were witnessing. And you do know why he suffered so much, don't you? You do know why this innocent lamb was slaughtered in such a way, don't you? It was done for you. It was done out of love for you. All of the suffering of Christ he took upon himself for your sake. And the wrath of God has passed over you and instead was laid upon Jesus because he cares for you. And you need to understand the physical suffering, the, the lashes, the humiliation, the beatings, the spitting in the face, the nails through his wrists as he hung on the cross, that physical suffering was nothing in comparison to the sheer suffering, the sheer horror of having his beloved father turn his back on Christ, although Christ was innocent, and reject him because of your sin that he took upon himself. Do you understand that the, the father, God the father, prepared his own son as a Passover lamb for your sake. And Jesus suffered it all according to the definite plan of his Father so that you and I might be forgiven of sin, declared innocent, and called children of God. And so when was the last time you wailed and you wept for the sins that you've committed that put Jesus to death? I mean, when was the last time you mourned out of sorrow for the sins that you have done that caused Christ such great grief. And of course, we never wallow in sorrow, right? That's not where the story ends for us. Yes, I think that we should, from time to time, be heavy with grief over the suffering that we brought to Christ, the innocent one. But we never wallow in that sorrow, and because we understand the old through the new, because we feast on the finished product of the gospel, this most glorious meal that mankind has ever been blessed to taste. Our tears of sadness and mourning, they quickly turn to tears of joy, don't they? Celebration. Because we know that the cross is not where the story ends. 
as Jesus prepared for his disciples to go and prepare the Passover meal, the Father had already prepared for Christ to be risen. And so for us, for those who believe, the cross is just the beginning of a glorious story, isn't it? It's the beginning not of death but of new life, the beginning of joy. The, be, the, the beginning of a long and beautiful love affair with the God who raises the dead and clothes sinners in robes of righteousness. And so, yes, from time to time, for a moment, let us weep with broken hearts for our sin. We need to do that. But then let us remember that all of this was the definite plan of God to show forth his love for us. And in that, then, let us rejoice in Christ Christ our Savior who left death and Satan impotent, who defeated them. Let our hearts be overwhelmed by our God who through the cross of death has made us alive with Christ. Let me pray. Lord, this story is is too wonderful truly for us to fully comprehend. But we thank you for the picture of the Passover, for this innocent lamb whose blood is spilled so that Israel might be saved from the destroyer and led out of slavery. And Lord, we thank you that your own son was prepared for us as a sacrificial lamb, that we too might escape from the slavery of sin and from death, the destroyer. Lord, would you help us take sin seriously enough that we mourn for our sins? And I pray that you would then bring us through that to an understanding of the resurrection where we celebrate with joy that Christ did not stay dead, but that according to your definite plan, he rose from the dead that we too might have life. God, I pray that we would live in that truth, that it would comfort us, that it would encourage us, that it would stimulate us onward towards greater love for you and greater good deeds in honor of you. I pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake, for his glory. Amen.